Hi folks, this is Jordan. The intro to today's episode was recorded on the recording app on my smartphone. The reason I'm doing that is because I want to show you how easy it is for you to record something on your app on your smartphone. Press the share icon and then email it to editor at theruminant.ca. I think this is probably the easiest way for you to record anything you want to share with a ruminant. Lately, I've been working on two separate episodes about farming with small children and what farmers are doing in the winter for, for work to pair up with their farming income. If you have anything for those two topics you'd like to share, try your voice app out. Try emailing me. See how it works out. I promise I'll edit out any mistakes so you don't need to press start and stop a bunch of times. Or if you have any other insights you want to share, please send them along. A good question to ask yourself is, what's the best decision you made in your farm or on your farm in the last couple of years? I'm sure other people would love to hear about it. Okay, let's do a show. This is The Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website and podcast that explores what good farming looks like. At theruminant.ca, you'll find photo-based blog posts, essays, gear and book reviews, as well as show notes for each episode of the podcast. I tweet at ruminantblog, and you can email me day or night at editor at theruminant.ca. Okay, on with the show. Today's episode features my conversation with Jim Riddle of Blue Fruit Farm in southeastern Minnesota. I first learned about Jim and Blue Fruit Farm at the Moses Organic Farming Conference in Wisconsin last year, and I thought the idea of a farm that focuses on perennial fruits, and more specifically, perennial fruits of a certain hue, was really cool. Our conversation starts with why Jim and his wife decided to switch from market vegetables to perennial fruits, and then covers a wide range of considerations if you're going to try this out for yourself, including variety selection, site preparation, marketing, and a few other things. If you want to learn more than is contained in this interview, you can head over to the show notes for this episode at theruminant.ca, where you'll find more information about what Jim Riddle is doing, including a PDF that summarizes his production practices and a link to his website, bluefruitfarm.com. Jim Riddle, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure, uh, Jordan. Thanks for asking. Jim, your resume and pedigree in organic agriculture is very long, uh, but today I'm, I'm mainly interested in, in talking to you about your farm, Blue Fruit Farm. And uh, I thought we could start by having you take me back a little, because you used to grow market annuals primarily when you were farming, and then when you got back into farming years later, you switched to the perennials that you're growing on Blue Fruit Farm. So I thought you could tell me really briefly about your first farming uh, of, of market annual crops, and then tell me why you switched over to, to perennials uh, with your latest effort. Yeah, well, when we were doing the farmer's market, uh, you know, you really need a wide variety of products on the stand. Uh, to draw the customer's attention. And, you know, in Minnesota, you pretty much have to have tomatoes and sweet corn, and then uh, people want potatoes, and then we added, you know, cut flowers, which uh, it amazes me that people, you know, uh, uh, spend the money they will on a bunch of flowers, but then they want a cheaper price on potatoes, which is going to keep them alive. But anyway, um, we uh, did that, like I said, for a number of years, but then um, we rented out the land that we were farming to another uh, organic farmer, Featherstone, Featherstone Fruits and Vegetables, 
and uh, he put up an eight-foot-high deer fence, and that was really always the number one pest of ours, and we'd done a number of different things. We have a very high deer population in our area, but Jack put up an eight-foot-high deer fence around this about five-acre field, and then he farmed it for a number of years, but the agreement always was that if he pulled out, that the fence would stay. So we were left with five acres of uh, weeds that were protected from the deer. And uh, my wife had the idea of planting blueberries, which um, is an easy thing to say, but it's not so easy to do on any large scale. But that was really the beginning of getting back into production. Um, But some of the reasons we went into perennials, um, avoiding tillage is a big one, but also um, growing some things that are well adapted to more extreme weather events and changing climate um, uh, and things that attract pollinators and then produce high value, high antioxidant, really intense uh, condensed value. So, um, you know, there are quite a bit of work um, for harvesting but, and, you know, a fair amount of, you know, one-time effort of pruning. Um, but then once you have the fruit, um, they have a lot of value. Uh, so, and very healthy, and also introducing people to a lot of new crops that aren't being grown in this area or sold uh, in the markets. Right. And, you know, when I was thinking about this interview leading up to it, I was I was one other I was left wondering if another motivation was the difference in the selling environment from years ago when you were growing market crops compared to now um, in terms of, in terms of uh, I guess, profitability or, or market share or whatever. Like, did you, was, was that a factor as well? As far as competing with other producers, um, that was a factor in the selection of some of the things that we are growing I mean, there's a lot of apples grown in this area, so we've really stayed out of apples, even though they're a perennial. Um, But there aren't a lot of plums being grown, so that was a more open market. And then there aren't a lot of organic blueberries grown in our uh, part of of Minnesota, Wisconsin area. And then these other things like aronia and black currants, elderberries, were uh, much more cutting edge as far as um, yeah, I, I, I like to say that um, uh, um, blueberries are difficult to grow, but they sell themselves. Mm-hmm. These other things are easier to grow, but you have to sell them. And we've really had to do a number of you know, workshops, promotional uh, events, tastings uh, to educate people on what these other fruits are and how to use them. And so part of it's also just kind of the challenge, the uh, you know, taking on something new and helping broaden people's food choices. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about about your farm and its specific crops and its branding because it's pretty interesting. Your farm is called Blue Fruit Farm, and primarily you're growing uh, fruit of perennial fruit of that hue. <laughs> um, right. So, right. Uh, I mean, there are certain qualities to blue fruits. Uh, health-promoting qualities, and typically very high vitamin antioxidants, um, and some have natural antiviral properties. Um, But, yeah, we have a few criteria, um, primarily 
The fruit needs to be blue. The plants can't have thorns, so we don't grow gooseberries or raspberries or blackberries. Um, and they need to be at least knee-high because I'm a tall guy and I don't want to be groveling on the ground picking things that are really low. Uh, so those are some of the things, and then perennial, of course, and uh, grow in our climate. Well, and I, I have to so. imagine that at some point it, it can't, I mean, it, it must have been a conscious decision to focus on blue at least partially for marketing purposes. It seems like a really great way to, to brand your farm. Well, right, and we've gotten uh, you know quite a bit of attention, I think, because of it. There have been a couple different uh, TV shows that we've been a part of, and a number of you know interviews and local media, newspaper type stuff. Uh, so I think that has you know it, it it's captured people's attention, and I think that's important for growers to think through as they're planning their crops, their farm name, their marketing strategies is, if at all possible, you know, something that can catch the attention of both the media and then ultimately the, the consumer, the buyer, or the restaurants you're working with. So I've got to ask, I mean, even though probably the, the, it's the obvious answer, um, you, didn't, you don't want plants with thorns because, what, they make you, they're just too annoying? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, uh, everything we pick uh, is done by hand. And so that's just one less uh, irritant. Um, you know, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with those crops. It's just our choice not to have things. Actually, my wife's choice. That's one of her uh, checkoffs on the list of criteria is no thorns. Mm-hmm. And um, it. And, and Jim, you, you mentioned a, a really smart decision. <laughs> you, you didn't want to grow stuff that grew too low. Uh, so yeah. were there any ruled out? Like, or would you? are there any uh, that would fit? otherwise fit your farm but you, that you aren't growing because they're just they grow well in, in, one of them that uh it's not blue so it doesn't meet that criteria but we do get requests for lingonberries mm-hmm. and uh i really because they're not blue i haven't looked into them but they're very short mm-hmm. also so that's a big count against them and a lot of people you know think fruit they think strawberries and those are very problematic and management intensive, plus they're down on the ground. So that's another one that gets ruled out. Even if there were a blue strawberry, I wouldn't grow it. So uh, before we now, I just want to kind of segue into talking about uh, how to set one of these a farm like this up and some of the production considerations. But uh, I think we should yeah. start. We've been talking about Blue Fruit Farm. Can you can you give me a, a list of, of the, 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 uh, the crops you're growing on the farm? Yeah, well, we have quite a few different varieties of blueberries, and, uh, you know, something about blueberries is... Hi, folks. This is Jordan cutting in during editing of this episode with Jim Riddle. Jim's answer to my question about what varieties he was growing was so thorough that I decided to pull it out and include it as a separate audio file, which you can access at the show notes for this episode at theruminant.ca. It was just a little bit too long to include in this episode. For those of you who are interested in the topic, but not so interested that you want to hear Jim talk about it in quite a lot of detail about all the different uh, fruits and berries he's growing, including growing considerations and varietal considerations. So for those of you who are, you can head over to The Ruminant and check out this separate audio file, as well as a a, a short PDF summarizing all of Jim's uh, considerations in terms of uh, starting a perennial fruit farm. So for our purposes here, I will just list off uh, the, the main crops on Blue Fruit Farm. Jim and his wife are growing blueberries, elderberries, black currants, blue plums, cherry plums, aronia berries, service berries, which are also known as Saskatoon or June berries, 
jostaberries, honeyberries, as well as New Jersey tea. Okay, back to my talk with Jim. Um, okay, so so Jim, I'm going to take us now through, uh, I guess, different production considerations. And I thought I could start by asking you about site preparation, since it, it seems like from what I read, you were pretty thoughtful about it. And also you, you didn't rush it. You took your time. And so yeah. could you talk about your site prep uh, and, 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 and why you thought it was important to take your time with it? Yeah, well, um, you know, when you're uh, planting perennials, you won't, you're only doing it once, uh, hopefully. <laughs> so you want to do it right. So really, uh, you know, making sure that the site itself is conducive to the crop you're trying to grow. Um, so our field that we were planting in has total uh, sunlight. So full sun and good airflow, and that's another critical thing, is you don't want to be putting um, some of these fruit crops in a pocket where moist air settles or you get, you know, unpredictable frost. So uh, sunlight penetration and good airflow, um, critical. Um, and, of course, you can't change that, but you got to work with what you have. So, um, uh, and then, you know, doing soil testing and um, you know we believe in adding the micronutrients uh, based on the soil test so we did that but also making sure that you know there's adequate macronutrients uh, and that the pH was adjusted the first year because of the weed seed load that had built up in a couple years um, we didn't plant any fruit we planted wheat and oats and various uh, clovers as cover crops to get the weed uh, situation under control. So one full year of cover cropping before we even started planting uh, any of the perennials. And then we broke it up into a three-year planting plan. So we weren't trying to do everything all at once. So we did about a third of the field each year over the course of three years and continued to cover crop uh, the parts that weren't being planted. So we're growing in strips for future planting um, things like buckwheat and sorghum sudan grass uh, to help you know break weed cycles and add organic matter. And we were also adding a lot of composted horse manure and uh, peat moss and elemental sulfur um, and did soil testing and soil balancing of micronutrients, you know, to um, have the soil where we wanted it to be because uh, blueberries, of course, need a very acidic soil in the range of 5 to 5.5 pH, and our native pH is around 6.8. So we really work to bring that pH down for the blueberries. Now, some of the other things we're choosing to grow aren't so fussy and they're happy with our soil the way it is. So them, it's just uh, basic fertility, adding compost. And I already went through what we've done, but I'll just to reiterate, um, you know, to bring the pH down for the blueberries, which are the really uh, critical one there. Uh, um, soil testing and then uh, adding elemental sulfur, which when it mixes with either irrigation water or rainwater, makes a weak sulfuric acid uh, solution, and that works down into the soil. Uh, but also um, adding 
uh, a horse manure compost that had um, oak, uh, hardwood sawdust bedding, and then mulching with either pine needles or hardwood bark mulch that's ground up, um, and uh, uh, working in peat moss uh, when we do our plantings. So we and we might monitor the uh, soil pH twice a year, spring and fall, in the same locations. And um, you know that's not something that you do just do once. You need to uh, keep on top of it and top dress with additional uh, elemental sulfur and compost. And right now we're managing to use uh, a dairy compost that has had peat moss added to it. So it's coming in at about 6.5 pH, and then we're you know bringing things down further with the sulfur. Um, so, you know, and then some of the other critical site preparations, just getting, you know, the perennial weeds and annual weeds under control as best possible, but they keep coming. I mean, that's just part of part of the job description is there's going to be weeds to deal with. And, but, you know, we're trying to get them knocked back is well worth the effort in advance. Um so that you know, that's a lot of the, uh, and we did a lot of uh, cover cropping as I went through earlier, um, and we even subsoiled, went through with a single uh, tooth, kind of a subsoiler ripper, and broke up, uh, you know, any plate plow pan um, to help with root penetration, help moisture flow, help nutrients flow. Um, uh, so that was something we only did once, but before planting, we went through all the rows and did subsoiling. And then everything we've planted um, has uh, a drip irrigation, and it's a permanent line. It's not drip tape, so it's three-quarter inch um, black piping with uh, emitters, two emitters at uh, 10 gallons per hour, uh, and then it's all uh, run by a solar 12-volt pump, and we've got about... 6,000 gallons of water storage. We collect rainwater off the roof of an equipment shed that we built in the field, and then we also can pump well water um, as needed. So, uh, you know, it all takes time to put in this infrastructure, and, you know, that's one of the things that years ago we were growing annuals because they don't take a lot of investment and you get a quick turnaround. This perennials is a later in life for us because, you know, you're putting in a lot of work before you get any return whatsoever. So it's really just been the last two years, um, 2014 and 15, uh, where we've had much of anything to sell. So we put in, you know, three years with just, you know, okay, that tastes nice, just playing around and getting familiar with the fruits before we had really any measurable sales. So, um, you know, you need to have the resources one way or another to sustain that level of investment before you get any return. So that's just another thing to think through. Um, you know, well, Jim, I wanted to ask you a related question, actually. I may as well ask you yeah. now. 
Uh, is this something you would recommend to people like me who are on shorter term leases? I mean, I know the obvious answer is probably no, but are there certain well, of the right. berries that would lend themselves better or, or is there a minimum lease term that you would recommend having before you commit to this? Well, yeah, if you're leasing, I'd be looking at at least five year lease if possible. But some of the ones that have a quicker turnaround, the black currants are producing in in the second year, and then aronia also by year three you're getting good harvest. Blueberries are frustratingly slow, at least for us. I mean, it's really plants are just, and that's another recommendation I would have if you are planting blueberries to plant the biggest, oldest plants you can afford right up front. And we made that mistake. We planted smaller bare root stock where basically we lost two or three years of production uh, by going cheap on the front end. So I'd say um, even if it's for a backyard garden, whatever, get the biggest, best plants you can get um, you know, on the front end, and that's going to be much more rewarding uh, just about in every regard. Um, compared to nursing small plants al- along, you know, the weed competition is worse. Um, you just got more attention to them. Um, and, and, and with, you know, without even, you know, tasting the fruit, I mean, you're just watching these small plants grow. Uh, so, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I'm the kind of farmer who always thinks, oh, well, I can get them cheaper if I get them younger and I'll take care of them from there. But that's a really good point. You, you lose a lot of ultimately production that way, just waiting for them and all the labor that goes right. into taking care of them. Right. I mean, yeah, they might appear twice as expensive in the front end or even three times as expensive. But when you think about when they're going to produce fruit, um, they're going to start paying back a lot sooner. Um, okay, well, well, just just one more question, follow up on the on the leasing idea. Like, how are, are do any of these plants lend themselves to moving? If you had to move, sure. move them. Yeah, yeah. Um, the black currants, uh, you could transplant, or black currants uh, are really easy to take stem cuttings and make new plants. And the same with the elderberries and aronia. Uh, so even if you don't move the plants, you can, uh, you know, take stem cuttings and reproduce them uh, for a new location. Um, and that way, if some of them didn't perform, you can leave them behind and select the ones that are working well for you and take those, you know, on the road. But blueberries, um, I've not been successful at doing stem cuttings from them, and there seems to be a fair amount of transplant shock uh, as well. So I wouldn't recommend them. And, of course, the plum trees, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, you, 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 you could do grafting onto new, new rootstock somewhere, but otherwise you'd probably be best off just getting new plants. Or if you're into grafting, that's great. You know, then, then, then you've got more options. Okay, Jim, we're 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 rapidly running out of time, so we're not going to cover every, everything. But on on the on the on your on blue fruit farm stuff, I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about pests, and then finish with a bit of talk about marketing. So, yeah, um, do, can okay. you just give some general comments about um about pest considerations? Yeah, well, um, I mentioned the eight foot deer fence, and and we wouldn't be able to successfully grow any of the things we're growing without deer protection. That's the number one pest for us. And then um, 
beyond that, birds uh, really love all these fruits just about. I mean, they aren't too bad on the, well, they really don't go after the aronia. Deer love the aronia bushes, though, so they have to be protected from deer. But, um, yeah, and so we've gone to great lengths uh, to try and first detour, deter birds um, with uh, putting up roosts for raptors and fake owls and fake hawks and then a bird guard device that's supposed to protect six acres and it you know, has these chips that have different recordings of both predators and the stress calls of the target birds. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that you can uh, have on when you're up there working because it'll drive you nuts. But, you know, it can be randomized, so it goes in different sequences and at different time intervals, um, and you can change the chips of the nine different calls that are going out. Um, And I think it helps, but it certainly, before we had netting, we were still losing a very alarming, frustrating amount of our fruit to the birds, especially things like the serviceberry, the blueberry, and the honeyberry. Those are the things that are just crazy. And it's not exotic birds. These are robins, but mm. also uh, bluebirds, um, uh, cedar waxwings, which are a flocking bird um, that just love fruit. Um, so, the, you know, if you're making the investment and doing all the site preparation and then uh, essentially have created a very expensive bird feeder, um, it's not all that rewarding. And so we went to great lengths over the last couple of years of putting up um, what's called a smart net uh, system. There's overhead netting over about three and a half acres. Um, the plum trees and aronia bushes are not netted, but the rest of our fruit is netted. And so there are overhead netting and then side curtains as well. So you're working inside a net house, essentially, when you're in the field. Um, But it has made all the difference in the world as far as being able to allow our fruit to ripen, number one, and then be harvested by humans instead of by birds. Um, So, um, and we had to, because we're certified organic, had to source untreated uh, wood posts because we needed 12-foot posts to hold the wire up at least nine feet. Um, And then there's a series of guy wires that support the netting overhead. And then at the end of the season, you push the netting back on those wires to the end of the row and then kind of tie it up. And then we even put a a layer of black plastic over it to um, help prevent UV uh, Mm -hmm. degrading. And then I don't know how many years we can get out of it. Um, they say up to 20, but I'll be really surprised. Um, but um, we this this will be the third year next year. Um, but so then you unfurl it, bring it out, clip it all up, and close the side curtains, unfurl them, and then uh, it really does keep the birds out. So, um, so that's a major, you know, pest for us. Do you have a suggestion um, for, for, for how someone can gain, learn about the knowledge and uh, materials to do that? Like how, how would someone go about figuring out how to build a netting system like that? Can you point Yeah, them? well, um, uh, just doing a search for smart net. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, and, and this system has been used in other countries in Asia, Australia, 
for for many years and then has come in in British Columbia. Um, the dealer we went through is out of Maine. Um, but uh, there's not a lot of this being done yet in the U.S., but there's more and more in vineyards. And we first had tried individual row netting where we'd have hoops over the rows and then would uh, – but – that's really difficult for harvest, and it wasn't all that effective either. The birds would find a way under that, even though we'd have it pinned down to the ground. And um, uh, But then every time you go to harvest, you've got to remove, pull that up, and then put it back. And a lot of times the netting would drag on the fruit, and then they'd go popping off. <laughs> um, so this is much more um, you know, successful and, and satisfying. But, yeah, SmartNet is the system that we used. Um, but I anticipate there'll be more and more available uh, in North America. So, Jim, you, say, you, you said uh, just moving on. You, you said uh, yeah. you've said you know blueberries sell themselves. How have you gone about uh, marketing the the lesser known stuff? What what, what how yeah. have you been successful? Well, we have several different strategies. Um, one is uh, we get a surprising number of people uh, sign up on our website, bluefruitfarm.com that are in the local area, say within 50 to 100 mile radius of us, and they indicate what fruits they're interested in, and then they get an email about two weeks before the fruits are ripe, uh, letting them know that they're, what, what we're coming on, what our price is, and we sell typically by five pound boxes, both aronia and then a number of the other fruits uh, to people, and then they, you know, they, these things are easy to freeze, so they can just, you know, put them in bags and pop them in the freezer and get out whatever quantities they want, or people make jams or jellies or juices uh, with them. So we do quite a bit where people actually come to our farm or we arrange a drop-off uh, of these five-pound boxes of, of fresh uh, blue fruits. But then we also work, there's a lot of food co-ops in our area, and so we've sold uh, quite a few clamshells, uh, you know, uh, retail packs through the food co-ops. And, you know, they put up uh, signage. We've made some shelf talker, point-of-purchase educational materials uh, to help people know what these things are and how they can use them. And so I think that's really helped. And then there's a number of restaurants that we sell directly to, and then they put them in different pastries or glazes or uh, you know, experiment with them in their menu, and they, you know, a number of restaurants these days highlight their producers, so they help educate people about Blue Fruit Farm, and then people seek us out because they had something at a restaurant they liked. Uh, so, and then we've been back to the farmer's market uh, a little bit, uh, but that's certainly not a primary uh, marketing outlet for us. And we're just this week going to be delivering uh, hundreds of pounds of frozen fruit uh, to a restaurant in Minneapolis, and we're doing a joint uh, jam project that'll be Birchwood Cafe Blue Fruit Farm line of different kinds of blue fruit uh, jams and preserves. Uh, so we'll be co-marketing those. Jim Riddle, thank you so much for, for talking about Blue Fruit Farm. It's such an, uh, an interesting uh, uh, farm and, 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 and approach, and I think Today my listeners will be really happy to hear about it. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, inviting me. That's all, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. 
Head over to the Ruminant dossier if you want to gain some more information about what Jim Riddle's doing with Blue Fruit Farm, including that audio clip where Jim goes into 14 minutes of detail as he describes what he's growing and some of the considerations when choosing varieties and, and stuff like that. Now, if you have ever considered making a submission to this podcast, now's the time to do it. Pull out your smartphone, turn on your recording app, and just record something. Then, press the share icon and email it to editor at theruminant.ca. While you're recording, you don't need to turn it off if you screw up. Just take a pause and then pick up where you left off. I'll take care of the rest in post-production. I'd love to hear from you. Editor at theruminant.ca. There's still time to get submissions in for two episodes I'm working on. One on what kind of work you pair with your farming just to make ends meet. And farming with small children. Okay, talk to you soon. Have a great week. like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.